The Island Portugal Business Network is comprised of more than 150 member companies based in Portugal and Ireland. These companies are from a wide range of industries and professions and represent in excess of 25,000 people. Perfect. Okay, so we are recording. So welcome everyone. Uh, Friday morning, Friday the 13th. So everyone is going to have a happy day today. <laughs> it's going to be a good day. So let me, uh, I'll go a little very quick about uh, my background and I'm going to introduce these amazing speakers that we have here. So uh, like Arnold said, I'm, uh, I've been working tech for a while. Uh, been mostly developing software, then moved to AI development for corporate and enterprise level companies, worked a lot on data and data governance. Uh, most of the work I do these days is around innovation projects. And so like, you know what that means, means that I'm always building crazy stuff. People come to me with uh, challenges, uh, with the struggles that they have in their businesses and my job is to create stuff for them so they can use it. And right now we are living the AI gold rush, as everyone knows. So everything that everyone is doing is around AI. Uh, we was even discussing that the other day that uh, sometimes they don't even have a problem, but they create a problem so they can do something with AI to solve it. <laughs> so what we're going to be talking about today is exactly that, is understanding if where AI actually plays a good role, where people are going too crazy about it, are we using it the right way, then we're going to have like really amazing input from the guys that are here and try to understand a bit more. And all of you, we're going to try to keep it dynamic. So if you guys want to say something, you want to ask a question, please do. We'll be more than happy to answer. And without... Like further ado, let me introduce like a JC. JC, welcome to, to our event this morning. Would you kindly introduce yourself to everyone? Thanks, Carlos. Um, my name is JC Durbin. I am the head of AI innovation for Ardonis. Um, I have my first exposure to AI was over 20 years ago. We were doing Bayesian-based inferential analytics in a startup we were involved in for the CRM space. And I've had tangential interactions with AI for a long time. And now we are working a lot with generative AI. The When people say the word AI, really what they're talking about is generative AI. Um, <clears throat> Ardonis is a technology partner to our companies. We help our clients solve complex problems using technology and AI is one of the tools that we use for that. Like Carlos said, it's, uh, it's the giant hammer and everything has become a nail for AI. And I think today will be interesting to show how that not every problem needs to be solved with AI, although the problems that are solvable by AI are solvable in a way that's very novel. That's me. Perfect. Thank you very much, JC. Now I would like to introduce Dr. Agatha. Would you, would you be kind enough to introduce mm -hmm. yourself to everyone? She'll tell us a bit about your background. I think we're having a... Some uh, is she like a mute? Hi, it's in mute. Oh, okay, <laughs> now you can hear me. <laughs> uh, hi, everyone. Um, I'm Agatha. I'm I hold a lawyer, um, a law degree. I'm, I'm a lawyer. I also hold a graduation course in intellectual property and um, technology and this uh, and uh, society of. of technology uh, um, and I'm I'm representing uh, I'm assisting at the Council of Europe as well so I did uh, 
the prepare uh, preparation uh, or I, I helped <laughs> the preparation giving advice on the future legal firm uh, frame on artificial intelligence regulation that's going is actually being discussed by the European Parliament so well I'm happy to provide some <laughs> insights uh, and uh, very humble uh, thoughts that I have on artificial intelligence ethics and and legal thank you agatha thank you very much and uh, we have a celebrity amongst us as well is dr tiago so dr tiago can you introduce yourself to everyone please i uh, thank you carlos hi everyone so i'm a urologist uh, nowadays i work in three hospitals i'm the head of the department in twin lisbon and i work in algarve in hpa and i'm also a professor of pathophysiology in the medical university in lisbon I'm not an expert in AI, for sure, but I can. I think I can bring the view of a surgeon to this panel. So let's see how it goes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Tiago. So moving on to to the first question that we have here. The question is for GC. Uh, GC, as you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, your company, Adonis, you've been doing a lot of work in tech and AI. Can you share like a, to everyone here a few insights uh, how AI is uh, revolutionizing enterprise solutions? And, and if you have some cases in uh, healthcare, could you share that with us? I think we can, we can directly address kind of healthcare and AI targeting it. It's a huge space for AI at the moment. Um, I think one of the biggest things in healthcare is the expanding demand for healthcare and the inability for healthcare to kind of meet those needs. I think, uh, was it the... Um, was it the WHO that came out the report recently that said that by 2030, there's going to be an increase in demand of uh, 35 to 40 million new um, healthcare positions, and they're going to be about 10 million short. So this, this gap is going to be increasing consistently. So one of the things that AI does for any industry, not just healthcare, is it acts as a force multiplier. So of all the things that it does, essentially what it does is it takes an individual and it increases their capacity to deliver whatever that is, whether that's an engineer building software, um, someone in the back office doing HR analysis or a healthcare professional providing clinical services. So um, I think that's going to be one of the biggest changes that you're going to see is the, the increased capacity of individuals through AI. And um, the AI that we're dealing with now, this generative AI, uh, it, which makes it different because, you know, AI has been in healthcare uh, 20, 20 years plus. I think you were using machine learning and um, convolutional networks to do image recognition for radiology and the like. So that's been around for a fair while. The difference between that and now is the ability of AI to really understand very complex contextual information, which the other stuff didn't really have the same capacity to do. So you're going to see AI in... Um, in kind of a couple phases, I think you're going to see it in healthcare. You're going to see right out the gate, which is what you're having now, is all the repetitive tasks that you would see for admin tasks, um, even predictive care, radiology, pathology, data analysis, image analysis, taking all of that information, digesting it to allow those individuals to do more. Uh, I think what's going to be surprising as well is its introduction into home care and aftercare with the AI doing kind of intelligent assistance facilitating individuals to take more ownership of their care because they'll have a tool that's personalized to them in an automated way versus trying to have an individual develop personalized care plans. 
Uh, and I think there's going to be a deeply embedded AI very soon, as soon as kind of AI and clinical analysis goes through these clinical trial phases. And you're going to even see AI working uh, as an assistant to the clinical uh, decision support process. So I think it's going to be a complete systemic change in healthcare over the next 10 years. Okay, thank you very much. There, and there were some really important points there. Like I, I even seen a few days ago that uh, showed an interview about um, a robotic uh, AI, uh, human-like uh, machines that are going to be taking care of uh, uh, like older generations. So like, a, and that's really important because they they're learning like a, how to be our psychologists, how to be off caring like it. So they can actually take care of people and be present in their lives. Uh, I think that's a good in practical use of AI, isn't it? So, and, uh, and JC, uh, I don't know if everyone here knows exactly what machine learning is, like what the AI actually means. Machine learning is a subset of studies yes. like AI. But when, when, we were, when you were talking about the visual recognition and uh, AI from uh, image to text, can you explain a little bit what to everyone? How, how does that work? Okay. So everybody's on the same page. So they understand when we look at uh, images, how does that happen? Okay, so let's talk about a kind of a, a common example that everyone would understand. So the analysis or let's say for oncology, right? The analysis of radiography images. Um, AI has an incredible ability to much more so than humans, especially with human assisted training to take an image and understand that what is going on in that image. So let's take an example of uh, a scan looking for uh, indications of cancer in the body. Um, for people who have not looked at those images before, uh, at, like someone like myself, I look at that and it's just a million shades of gray, very difficult to understand. It takes years of training for someone to be able to make decisions based on that for what further care is gonna be. And the impacts of those decisions are profound. You know not catching it or making a decision where you see something that isn't there and the surgery and the chemo and all the stuff that goes on from that. So AI can take those images and you can feed it a uh, thousand, 10,000, 20,000 images and tell it this image has an indication of cancer here um, because a human has pre-evaluated that and you can do this iteratively. It takes human involvement in the first part so then the AI can learn what it looks like. And the thing that's amazing about generative AI is you don't have to feed it a million images like in the old machine learning, they weren't as intelligent. Generative AI is able to take very little information and extrapolate and learn from that information. So you can take images where it's never seen before that are completely unfamiliar to it. And it's able to make uh, decisions based on that, just being fed similar images or images that are so for example, you could have a, uh, a breast scan that shows cancer and it never saw one before, but it saw other cancer in other parts of the body and was able to extrapolate forward. It's an amazingly powerful tool and it does it not just in radiography. I'm sure you're all familiar with all the generative AI for images in art. Uh, it's the same idea, it works in the same process. Really good, thank you. Uh, but it's one important thing to mention, and like everyone, not uh, everything is uh, is perfect. Uh, uh, the generative AI, if you give the, the wrong input, you'll get the wrong output. So you, you, you have to be very careful with that because uh, we have what we call hallucination of the machine. And, yeah. and the reason for that is the generative AI is a creative AI. 
So you will make things up if he doesn't have the right contents. If he doesn't have the right answer, he'll just make it up. So we have to we have to be aware of that as well. And just before we move to uh, to Agatha, we have a couple of questions here. One from Lauren and one from Shane. Lauren, he asks us, uh, do you feel like uh, AI approach can solve growing demand for social care? Just well, I decided to put this question up because it's something that we are already talking about. So yeah, what's your I think it's a really good question because the um, there's always the concern of the human interface, right? The idea that humans uh, respond physically to interfacing with other humans. And if you switch that out so that only AIs are interfacing with human, is there going to be a loss of social contact? Is there going to be a decreased quality of personal experience? Um, which is an interesting question. And I don't think we have an answer to it, but we do have some studies where they were using AI in a um, therapeutic counseling uh, session. And they did some studies on that where they put AI onto a feature generated face and um, sort of sadly, but also interesting, they were able to break down what humans respond to, how we develop oxytocin from contacts, how we develop positive responses. And it's not actually physical human presence. It's certain features that we respond to in face and the actual interaction that they have. And they were able to generate therapeutically effective counseling responses without humans there using generative AI, both for the facial features and the interactions. So I think that we will see, I don't think a replacement of social providers, but you will see, again, a force multiplier where a given um, social care provider may have four or five uh, AI agents that help them uh, provide care, but there's still going to be some amount of human involvement. I think same with teachers and the like, you won't see a complete removal of humans, but you will see kind of a diminishing of human involvement where they might be involved 10 to 15% of a given uh, therapeutic session and the rest would be provided by AI. Uh, and uh, I think it's important about that is uh, we'll give the the social care advisors time to actually do their work better. So I think that yeah, that you have there's inadequate amounts of social care at the moment in most countries. So it's not like you are replacing an adequate system with AI. You are taking a system that is overworked and overburdened and allowing those workers uh, to expand their capabilities. So you will increase the amount of care uh, that people are receiving. Okay. And just before, like, uh, Shen put like a question: What measures are in place to ensure diverse perspectives in training of AI? That's a bit. Um, that's a, that's uh, a very big, big question. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I'm going to have to talk about it tangentially, right? Because in uh, in some of the situations that we're dealing with, except for the human to human, the AI perspectives aren't really relevant in terms of, for example, image analysis, right? So. The, if you're doing a radiography analysis, you're not able to determine necessarily any uh, any racial or gender uh, issues with the, with identifying the radiology. Where this may play a role is in generating personal care, because you might have to have uh, the understanding of different socioeconomic uh, situations that people are in for the AI to be able to develop care. Um, where it really pays a role is in generating text and uh, algorithms that are making decisions based on individuals. So that would that would that is an issue. But you're going to see a lot more uh, opening of the black box of AI's decision making process. In fact, Anthropic just released a groundbreaking fundamental discovery on how to interpret and see the decision process for AI. 
And the results of that is going to really open the insides of these and how they're working. And it's going to be able to let us see um, not just, well, we know this was trained on um, a thousand white faces and only 20 uh, people of color that we can see, but we can't necessarily decision process. That's all going to change. Now you're going to be able to see these decision processes and how they're impacted. So I think that this is not going to be a problem for much longer. Okay, thank you very much. Now we're going to move on to a question that pops to everyone's mind all the time. That is, what are the legal aspects and the ethical aspect of, of AI? Because uh, when we talk about it and we talk about bringing AI, especially the the gay AI, the generative AI to like to, to businesses, uh, what uh, like uh, everyone is like, uh, what's the legal concerns about that? Like, uh, what's that? ethical aspect so i'm going to ask agatha like if she could um, if she could enlighten us a little bit in what's your considerations and uh, what's around this topic what the legal and ethical sides of ai can you tell us a bit about that agatha yes of course i would like and i will take gsay gsay uh, um uh, explanation because actually in order to explain the legal and ethical uh, challenges that um, the application of artificial intelligence has in healthcare we need to go a little bit uh, further and uh, and the background is is exactly Machine learning and artificial intelligence, they, uh, they, they are allowing uh, what we call the medicine of the future, which is precision medicine. And precision medicine, in short, it is an approach to healthcare that takes into consideration the individual genetic makeup, lifestyle, and environment. So basically, as GC said, the human uh, assessment, the doctors, the nurses, <laughs> and the ones who have uh, um, a possibility to, to assess in terms of healthcare are limited because the human being is actually limited. So in fact, collecting this data using machine learning and or artificial intelligence tools, it's the collection of big data. And the question now that we can, <laughs> we can make is how is this big data being treated? Because this data collection can be used, as GC said, to develop a more persistive way to practice preventive medicine. So I think this is the key, and this is the key to understand. So by analyzing this big data, researchers can easily identify patterns that can be used to develop personalized treatments for diseases. Uh, so we've seen cancer on any other uh, uh, major diseases, and that is not necessarily bad if we think about uh, if we think about that. Uh, but listen, how how is this data being collected? This is very important to understand, and also background. So big data can be collected as sources in the medical rec uh, records, uh, hospital records, uh, medical exams uh, uh, results, and information collected by the healthcare uh, testing machines, such for instance, the electrocardiograms. So these are stored during the lifetime of the patients. And nowadays, via these new technologies, data, and communication, then they can be treated. 
in a large scale. So this is where <laughs> the issue is coming because um, the medicine of, of the future seem to be based on collection, storage, treatment, and sharing massive amount of personal data. And I, I, I will say it again, personal data <laughs> from different sources and integrating into models, automatizing, automatizing decisions by supporting systems that are in fact capable for guidelining the healthcare of professionals in discovering the safest and eventually the most effective preventive or therapeutic way or measure in, in a specific case. So this is ideal indeed. So having this as a background, what are the challenges? <laughs> the, it, to me, and of course, I, I'm happy to hear otherwise, but the challenge is that these medical decisions will be taken, if it is not yet taken already, uh, by an algorithm with artificial intelligence. And this is a major concern. Why is that? Because we have um, uh, I don't know if you know about this law, is, is data protection law in European Union that says that the owner of the data, so ourselves as individual, we uh, should not be exposed to any decision based in 100% in algorithm. Why is that? Because this can fail. There is a reason why this is the, uh, uh, there is a law protecting this, this this decision. Why? Because the the collection of the data is collected in a, in a in a way that it's not transparent at all. So basically, for instance, I can tell you uh, 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 the the uh, some some medicine can be or some diagnostic can be done in a particular person and is taking into consideration BS that was developed for others other uh, other individuals and not exactly that one in particular. So this is not transparent at all. So if we do a decision based one hundred percent in algorithm, I think this is a challenge. Um, the second challenge that I do, and is in consequence of the first, is medical decision take, uh, taken without any human supervision, sup uh, without being supervised by human. And my our concern is exactly because if we leave everything to to an algorithm, as 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 I have explained, is not transparent and can raise also other questions, namely in terms of liability. So imagine that the, the algorithm goes wrong. From the legal point of view, who, sh who shall we hold liable? Is the doctor, the machine? But the machine does not have any type of responsibility or liability in terms of the law because it's, it's, it's a machine. So this um, is also what I shall... One question, so... Because yeah. everyone, everyone is taking, so I'm going to say it. And how about the doctors? How many mistakes they do all the time? I know, I understand <laughs> that. Of course, of course, I know. <laughs> this is challenges. But uh, listen, a doctor, from the point of view of the law, I can help responsible, I can help liable because he has what we called in law uh, um, uh, uh, personality. He exists 
and the machine, it doesn't. You see, so I cannot hold directly responsible in terms of the law, a machine, I can't. And due to this way of machine learning or artificial intelligence done in a way that is not transparent at all, we don't know exactly who is the fabricant of that machine. This is very, very complicated to assess. And it, this is one of the challenges, of course. That's why the parliament or, well, that's why the proposal for the artificial intelligence is to have an insurance uh, where it should be a direct liability. But we can discuss that later. So and the I, last one. Sorry yeah. to interrupt you again, but sure. uh, uh, I, don't, I, just, I just have to interrupt you sometimes. I do apologize because no. I, I Question from Dr. Tiago here as well because he's, he's, he's raising his hand. Hi, Agatha. Yeah. Uh, just, just to, couldn't we make accountable the ones that are receiving the money from the patient, for example? Because the the patient will go to a clinic and the clinic is is collecting the money, is being paid for the for providing a service, and it's it's from a doctor. Also, the clinic will, will be accountable for the mistakes. Couldn't we think about the same way for AI and, and decisions made by AI? What do you mean? So you mean that we can help responsible the hospitals that uh, buy the people that the, the people that that are I'm saying we make accountable uh, responsible the ones that are receiving the money from the service. So if I put a doctor doing the service, or if I put an AI machine, if I'm receiving and everything goes okay, I'm very happy. When things go a little bit wrong, I should yeah. my should be my responsibility. So I, well, I don't think that we should look at AI in the, in medicine like like a, a strange entity without that could be couldn't be accountable for anything. Well, yeah. I, I'm just asking. I don't know the laws. Yeah. Well, it is basically you cannot help the, uh, liable a machine. You can't. It's the is the but fact. You, what, but you can, what you the, the can ones do that... is uh, to do an insurance, and this is what it is proposed. Which to me it makes sense, but raising other questions. And I understand why the parliament suggests this to be approved. Is that if if a machine makes a mistake, uh, it should have an insurance to cover that mistake. So it's a very practical way to sort it out. That so, in first instance, how how this can be done. But isn't that a, a easy way out that they are putting on? Because uh, exactly. it, it, it sounds it more like a like I it don't is. want to be responsible for it. Exactly. It's an easy way exactly. out. They're, exactly. Tra they're treating it like a tool, right? Like the yeah. idea, like if an MRI machine fails, yeah. uh, exactly. the hospital is still responsible, but then the hospital can pursue the MRI manufacturer exactly. because the hospital was the provider of care. I think ultimately the provider of care should always be held responsible. And then it's up to them to pursue because they're using AI. I know this is going to change as AI becomes more embedded, but at the moment, AI is a tool and mm -hmm. it's a tool that facilitates it of the people that use it. So if a tool fails, the provider is still responsible ultimately until they pursue the, the manufacturer of that tool. But mm -hmm. when AI becomes really embedded into this, the new future of highly interconnected data, you won't mm -hmm. necessarily be able to pull it out as this entity that failed. It's going to be mm -hmm. embedded into the entire mesh of care. And if it does fail, then who is responsible? I think this is where mm -hmm. I was getting to. Once yes. it becomes fully integrated and embedded, it's really no longer a tool. It 
is healthcare. It will be healthcare and you won't be able to extract it and hold it responsible if it fails because it's it's going to be too enmeshed. It'll be too many moving parts. Um, yeah, and this is where kind of yes, being able to, to see how to the algorithms are created. Like if you talk about the US, for example, the US um, legal system uses algorithms to facilitate uh, assigning um, terms for prison, right? So if you have um, 50 people going before a judge, they use this automatic algorithmic system for determining how long they're going to be in jail. And they actually found that there was bias in that algorithm and that people of color were getting longer duration jail terms. And they had thought that they were going to use this to prevent human bias, but they found out that it had bias in itself. So algorithms by their nature are going to have some form of bias. So I assume it's going to be the same in healthcare as well. And it goes back to the question that it was that Shane Warren uh, put out, which is how do we determine the bias in things that are not visible to us? Um, and then who do we hold accountable for to make those changes? Yes, yeah. exactly. Thank you. The the and basically, if we think about it, is is that why this is happening in United States? Well, basically, I would like to make here a difference in terms of United States and Europe. Is that um, in the United States, in fact, the judge can do this type of uh, of uh, of decisions based in uh, algorithm because there is a, a lack. And we don't have that in Portugal, that or in Europe, but there is a lack in the in the, there in the in the in the system that people cannot afford justice. So it's more easy to get the algorithm and the artificial intelligence to rule certain certain uh, situations or legal situations and challenges there. And we don't have that in Europe because most of the countries, they have welfare state, but that's a good example of how the al algorithm in fact can fail and is failing. Uh, and why is that? Because uh, it is based the artificial intelligence in machine learning and to whom they are going to learn from humans. So yeah. in fact, we think like that. Yeah. Uh, and if we had, instead of a machine, if we have someone to get hold of, uh, a doctor, and of course the doctor or the, or any other uh, healthcare uh, person uh, who is dealing with this also is based, the production is based on past, uh, on experience and past experience before, of course it is. But at least in that situation, it's possible to assess and to see, okay, but uh, I can help directly you liable. You don't have this amount of information that in fact, I don't know where it's coming from. So I think that's a huge difference uh, from using artificial intelligence that once again, I want to be clear, is not <laughs> at all bad, but I think it should be assessed. In fact, taking into consideration the ethical aspects and also to have, of course, uh, some human uh, supervision and the use of uh, artificial intelligence. Um, Thank you, Agatha. And um, I have to bring this, because we could go on forever in this in this topic here, because uh, I think you'd give like a six or seven hour discussion easily. But uh, I have to move on to the next topic, otherwise Arnold will beat me up. He's already making funny looks at me from there, like we can see. <laughs> but uh, let, let's go to Dr. Tiago now. Dr. Tiago, like uh, your specialist on uh, micro-robotic surgery and, 
even if you could explain a bit more about that, everyone would be happy to understand how it works. But I would uh, I would have a question for that is taking into consideration this micro robotic surgery. Uh, how is AI enhancing these capabilities, and what's the future in that? Can you can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So thank you again. The AI in healthcare has been improving a lot, and in very different areas. I think in the as JC told us before, in images and the pathology, it's way far ahead. They are using a lot. They're, we are being using it in Lisbon also already. And it's, but because it's fairly easy to, to, to do it, you can teach the machine what to look for. And then with all these things that you know much better than I, it will improve and the results are very good. When you go to the surgeries, it's a different story. First of all, because what we need to do, and it, that is where I think we are not there yet, is with the results of the surgery. So for, and for that, we need a follow-up, not just an immediate result. And then is where the GRPD is important and to have the authorization of the patients to be inside the study to the follow-up. Because I do the surgery, but when I finish, I'm not sure and I can't tell the machine if the result is good or not. I need to wait for the post-operative, immediate post-operative time, for the long, po medium post-operative, long post-operative. So I can tell when I finish, at the moment that the patient is, is waking up, I can tell. I can tell that it looks good, but then I need to see the results. So I, and this is very important because for this, we need a follow-up. So we need to identify those, the, those images for a patient and we, we need to know the result in the end. And then I can tell the machine, if it was good or not, and then trying to understand why it was not so good. And sometimes it's difficult even for, for experienced surgeons. So I think this is the, the first big problem is this follow-up and having an accurate data that we don't have nowadays. And I think that studies have evolved. Nowadays, we have a lot of studies done with the interface of, of a, a system, a, a operative system. So. We can incorporate AI. It's, it will be much easier than uh, 10, 20 years ago when it was open surgery. Mostly, I remember trying a goggles to help doing the surgery, but it was very, very uncomfortable. Then we can't see very well. So everyone ab abandoned that 10 years ago. Now we have a good robotic surgery, a good interface. So, and now we have also another different thing for the last three, four years that we have different robots for different surgeries. So we have different machines, different algorithms. So I think it will increase in the near future the possibility to use AI to help in the surgery. And what I think is that there are two main fields that they can help. One is giving us surgeons alerts. So don't do that. You know, predicting the movement and say, oh, okay, don't do that because it will be a mistake. It will be, it, it's, a, it's a vessel that will bleed if we are cutting or is, a, is the rectum in radical parsitectomy, for example. So I think we can, in the, in the near future, when we know the results of the surgery and we have this data, it will be possible to give some alerts. So not doing the surgery, but alert the surgeon, also because of the legal part, alert the surgeon that, okay, don't, it's, be careful. Are you sure that you want to go that way? And the other field in the robotic surgery that I think the, they are, the big companies are starting to look at, looking at is tutoring the, the new surgeons. 
because we have a huge, huge problem in teaching in medicine, especially in Portugal, but in many other countries in Europe, because we don't have enough tutors. So I think that we have, if the uh, AI, if we have a machine learning or AI, I don't know which type, that can really teach, even in the simulator, the, 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 the medical, the residents and the young roller and young surgeons to do and what to do next and helping, I think it will be a huge improvement to be able to transfer them to real surgeons, much, much more capable surgeons to do the procedures. I was, um, I think in, just to finish and to talk a little bit about what I think, I think it was JC told us before, I think AI in healthcare, it will be a huge improvement for many, many things. But I every every week there is a new AI platform saying that will change this and change that, and for me I think that what I would like to see more is trying to solve the problems and trying to see AI solve the problems of the non-human tasks, the the collecting of data, the 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 changing the way that there is a uh, in the flow of the patient in the hospital and not so much at this, at this time, changing the human task of empathy, sympathy, recognizing the, the feelings of the patient. I think it, it, for, for the whole setup, it will be much better if AI machines at this moment replace what humans are not so good because I think humans are better in interaction with humans to humans and doing all the other stuff. And this is and one last example to not take so long is with data to collecting data for the, for big data, for, for studies. We have a, 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 some clinical trials going on. And what we see nowadays is that it's very, it's, I think the biggest problem in scientific papers that we see nowadays is the, the, the accuracy of the data that is put in the beginning of, of, of the study. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw there was it was published a paper about uh, a database of Medicare analyzing BPH surgery with, uh, I think it was 180,000 patients. But the, it's a huge number. It's, a, it's all, all the United States for two, two years for BPH surgery. The problem is that I, we are not sure, but I'm almost sure that the, those data are not correct. So, and, and if the data in the beginning is not correct, then we can have all the fancy algorithms and all the fancy AI and machine learning. The result in the end will lead us to make wrong decisions because we don't have good data in the beginning. And it's very difficult to have big data collected by humans. It's very difficult. It's, it's very expensive. It's very expensive to motivate people to collect good data and not just go quick and fulfill and put, put in every data that they want. So I think that, uh, well, I'm not sure. I hope you told you tell me that. But I, I hope that AI could really increase the accuracy of the data that we collect so you can have big data, but good big data, not just big to be big. Uh, but I don't know if it's it's yeah. That's uh, that's something that uh, AI specialists are working right now is um, 
understanding how to get better inputs from the data. Because right now it's all a question of uh, bad input, bad output. If you're good at giving it uh, information data, then it gives you amazing information back. So, but that's something that they are tackling right now. And one of the things to solve that is take the human data out of consideration because they already have a lot of data that they can learn more from it. That, but then again, we have, uh, I think it was signed a few weeks ago that uh, they are stopping this kind of evolution in, in studies. They want uh, a break of two years before they move on to this, what they're going to call the AGI. So it's an artificial intelligence that can think for itself, create tasks for itself, and then give us better outputs. But that's something that's on hold for now because uh, it's considered a, a big risk for everyone. But um, just moving on here because uh, we're coming short of time. I had another three questions, but I'm going straight away for one that I consider very important. And then this, this question is for everyone. It's all really beautiful and amazing what we're talking about. We, we're talking about data, we're talking about AI, and we see that the uh, uh, United States are doing amazing work with that, China, uh, well, got the, even Russia is doing amazing work with AI, but how do, how do we make it fair and square to everyone? Because what as we see it right now is it looks like we are creating a, a bigger gap than ever before. Like we already have like the, the third world countries that are still struggling with electricity, water, food. And then now we're putting another layer on top. That is the first world countries have amazing access to AI and they can do whatever they, they want with it. And is in healthcare, they're going to become even better. And how about the the countries that still have a very poor healthcare that uh, they're still struggling to even find doctors doctors to to be there. Never mind understanding these data. Uh, and I would like to start with uh, Dr. Tiago, but everyone like uh, Agatha and, and JC can can jump in as well. And how do you see this? Uh, how do we tackle this problem? No. Yeah. I think it's a very, very important topic, but it's very difficult. For example, I do a lot of robotic surgery here in Lisbon, uh, but in the end of November, I'm going to San Tomé Prince, a former Portuguese colony, to do surgeries. It will be all open because I don't have any of these devices there. So it will be open surgery like it was here 20, 25 years ago. So I think this this is a problem that it's it's not for sure not specific for AI and healthcare. It's a problem for all the society. And uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll, I don't have an answer for that. Sorry. That's a good question. The best question is the one that we can't get an answer for. <laughs> so, <laughs> Agatha and JC, what's your thoughts on that? If I can come kind of as a technology optimist, um, I believe, <laughs> so I believe that AI is, is um, if regulated, I would definitely would be pro-regulation, but um, I would be against kind of blind reactive regulation. So, one of the things that I think is really important is that we prevent kind of the forming of an oligopoly in AI, which is what you see happening with um, Microsoft and Amazon. They seem to, they have adopted it, open AI. So you're seeing these companies kind of own it. And the reason that they're beginning to own that space is because of the cost to train what's called foundational AI. So open AI is a foundational model. GPT is a foundational model. It costs hundreds of millions, uh, six months to a year to train these models. And then all of the stuff that we build sits on top of these foundational models. There's little training that can happen above them. So you can take like an open AI model and train it to do healthcare or train it to do financial analysis, but you can't 
as a, as a normal company create a foundational model. However, you're seeing open source and open source is a free software initiative that's been around forever. Every software that you work on, anything that you interface with in your life, a giant portion of that is open source. It's pieces that have been created by local communities and started. So one of the things that's really important is the use and support of open source foundational models. And one of the things that I was greatly concerned with is, um, and I felt it was a bit disingenuous, I would be a big Sam Altman fan, I would be a big OpenAI fan, but one of the things that Sam Altman and OpenAI did is they were involved in the process for the new legislation that's going to be coming around um, uh, large foundational models. And one of the things that they were supporting is the idea that there should be legislation around the creation of these that involve testing and um, regulating. The problem with the way that they were approaching this, both in the US and Europe, is that the way that this was worded, it would prevent any open source company or even smaller companies from being able to create and use foundational models because the cost of the legislation and testing would have been so high that it would just further entrench these large companies. Um, I think it's called legislative capture is the term where you use legislation to create systems that reinforce the holders of the technology and prevent new entrants from coming in. So I think to address the issue just in a, in a nutshell is we need to make sure that we facilitate innovation and development in this space so that you don't end up with a monopoly of people who are driving costs because open source is a, what's going to allow these small AIs to be able to use in third world countries, these small AI to be able to use in highly targeted things that will end up democratizing AI. And if you don't end up doing that, you'll end up with more superpowers, but it'll be AI-based superpowers. It'll be the US, it'll be China, it'll be Europe. Um, and if Europe passes their really restrictive legislation, then Europe is going to end up losing out and it'll be like the US and China again dominating the space and creating an even larger wealth gap. So democratizing AI is probably going to be the number one topic that you see in legislations around the world. Okay. Thank you very much. Agatha, do you want to say something about this topic or do you want to jump that one? Um, yeah, I don't have a final idea on that. To be honest, I'm, uh, I'm, I understand the, the, um, the benefits of open uh, AI, and I'm actually in favor of that. The issue that or the challenge here is that if you don't have this regulated, and I can give you the example of uh, of what happened with Tesla. So you, we need to take the 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 into account that the sample used for machine learning, uh, it's not a sample that in fact reflects Europe or the United States or even each country. So basically, Tesla they did the sample of the of 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 their of their system was taken back into South America in a, with very very poor conditions uh, citizens and basically they have the instinct to kill. So basically, if you take into consideration the machine learning and the sample is humans with instinct to kill. And you, if you are producing a car basing, based on this machine learning and this sample, and you are selling these cars to United States, well, United States is different because they have like free regulations in terms of uh, guns, and we don't have exactly here in Europe. But let's take into consideration Europe. If you are selling cars in Europe <laughs> with the machine learning, with the instinct to kill, 
what does this mean? So that's why this needs to be regulated. I just want to uh, to put this layer on what Jisei said, um, which I think is important. And this is actually a challenge. This is a huge challenge. And I think if you leave it open, what may happen, and this is the concern, I'm not saying that I'm in favor or not, I'm not taking here a position, I think it's very difficult to assess legally, is that if we leave it to small companies, for instance, they might not get, because they don't have enough money to cover all the costs, for instance, for the samples, to get the samples, and probably only the big companies they do have. So in fact, but then again, is a, 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 a change in the market and can be a change in the market because even the big companies are trying to, to save money and use samples as probably they don't reflect the, the products that they are, they are producing, uh, the ones that they in fact want to target, which is the European countries or even United States. They are not going to sell exactly a large amount of Teslas in uh, South America, isn't it? Um, so this is just another layer on uh, to reflect. This has been a production of the IPBN in partnership with Pinkroom. For more information, visit us online at island-portugal.com and on LinkedIn at Island Portugal Business Network. For more IPBN podcasts, find us on Spotify or visit our website for the full list of episodes.